Hi, my name is Stuart Biddlecombe and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how you doing? I am doing great. How are you doing? It was a fireworks extravaganza yesterday. It was the 4th. How, how was your 4th? Yeah, we might have been recording this yesterday and uh, on the 4th of July as we're recording this on the 5th of July. And on the 4th of July, I don't know that we could have gotten clean host wraps because it sounded like uh, a uh, war the, zone. It sounded like the Blitzkrieg of London going on outside uh, my my house. I'm pretty sure that Los Angeles is the land of illegal fireworks. It really is. It's uh, it's kind of nuts. There's no fireworks legal here inside the county of L.A., but uh, yet uh, they yeah, we're, are, in a, they're we're a desert and we're in a, and we're currently in a drought. We, no one should be doing anything with like fiery anything. Can I tell you the weirdest story about someone complaining about fireworks? Sure. To me, it's just one of my favorite things ever. It was on Nextdoor. I don't know if you're familiar with Nextdoor, but it's sort of like if you brought the YouTube comment section to your neighborhood. Mm hmm. And applied it to your neighbors. So I believe it was last year, somebody complained, not in my neighborhood, but in an adjacent neighborhood, that the, it was like three or four days after the 4th and people were still lighting off fireworks. And he complained that he has a spider farm in his garage <laughs> and uh, where he breeds spiders. And the fireworks were making the spiders not want to breed and making them agitated. <laughs> and he was afraid that they were going to crawl into his son's room in the house. And I feel like it's the most creative way that I've ever seen anyone say, please stop lighting off fireworks. Because uh, I, uh, I, I, it's just one of the most brilliant things I ever saw. And he, he was specifically saying he had these peacock spiders, which if you're in front of a computer, look up peacock spiders. They're gorgeous. And I'm saying this is someone who is pretty close to arachnophobic, but peacock spiders are beautiful. And he said that he couldn't get them to mate because of the fireworks. So happy Patriot Fourth of July, everybody. Um, and, uh, I'm, and, I'm not going to be able to forget this story now. <laughs> no, no, it's a great story. And I think if you think about lighting off fireworks as dissuading spiders from breeding, <laughs> it it might make you want to do more with fireworks. So who is on the show today? On the show today is a cinematographer, Stuart Biddlecombe. Stuart Biddlecombe of, of course, Handmaid's Tale fame. Holy crap. Like water cooler show. We get into it. Nice. All right, Ben. So what's our close focus for today? Actually, before close focus, I have a terrible revelation of something that I learned tonight uh -oh. that I that I need to tell okay. you that I intentionally didn't mention off mic mm. because I wanted your honest real time response to this. OK, I'm ready. Are you sitting? Are you sitting down sitting earlier tonight? I went to a restaurant for the first time in 16 months to hang out with some of our friends, some of our mutual friends. Did Matt you, Compton. Did you sit outside? Dan yeah, I, we did. We were all outside. Uh, producer Matt Compton. Mm -hmm. Director, co-director of the Blair Witch Project, Daniel Myrick, uh, Rackon Tour producer, director, everything multi-hyphenate, Zubi Mohammed, great great friend of both of ours, and Kazal Atrakshi, who revealed something to me. Kazal Atrakshi, who created all the music that we're listening to on this show, revealed that he listens to the show. Yeah, you know what? I think I'm going to trump you here because he revealed something to me yesterday because I saw him for the 4th of July. It's that he listens to the show. Yes, he listens to the show, and he also revealed one other detail to me that he might not have told you. No, I, I'm pretty sure he did, but why don't you go ahead and take it? 
he said, you know, your guests are fine, but I would just listen to an hour of you and Ben talking. Oh, my God. Is that what he told you? He did tell me that, yes. <laughs> so I think we've had him all wrong. I think he's been listening to this show every week, and he just doesn't but say he's been, anything. He's been, he's been all like Russell Carpenter, Russell Schmarpenter. I'm <laughs> yes. listening to my two Jagoff friends run their yaps. <laughs> yes, I think that's exactly it. So he waited till the 4th of July, basically, to troll both of us. Uh, I didn't talk mm-hmm. to you yesterday, but clearly he knew he was going to see you. And so he, he let this little drama bomb drop here, you know, about. I'm uh, shocked. How- it, ru- it ruins our <laughs> shtick because our shtick, for those of you who don't listen to us all the way through the end, is we always thank Kays and then remind everyone that he will not be listening to this episode. But in fact, he's been, he's been listening, listening to them all along. He's been listening to them. And, and that's actually the other reveal that he had, which was the reason I was invited to his little, uh, you know, small neighborhood get together on the 4th of July is because he heard the episode where you and I are talking and you mentioned something about him making pizza uh, or like, you know, something about his house. And I said, oh, I've never been to Kay's house. And he was like, oh, when he heard that, he's like, I better invite Ilya to the next thing I do, which is this 4th of July thing. So so there you go. Okay, so dear listeners, I want you to go to his website, which is musicbykays.com. And just ask him uh, any question about his pizza. <laughs> so, Ilya, uh, what do we want to talk about with our close focus segment today? Oh, man. The DGA has uh, readopted the first run theatrical rules for movies to be considered for a DGA award, which, I mean, you're a member of the DGA. What do you think about this? They did not consult me hilariously. Um, what do I think? How I dare mean, they? I, ultimately, well, first of all, it would be a coup if the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences did not follow suit and make the same rule for Academy consideration. Meaning, if you are to win an Academy Award next year, you would have to have been initially released theatrically. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fuck up some people. Actually, our producer Alana Cody said Denny Villeneuve. Dune is not going to be therefore eligible for a DGA award because it's being released, I believe, day and date. So it'll be on HBO Max the same day that it's out in theaters. Oof. Well, uh, they said they were going to do that, but I think they'd have to renege and go and do a one week sort of theatrical run before all their releases in order to qualify. I wonder wonder if they could even just do a one day. Like if it's like they could just release it on Wednesday theatrically exclusively. I wonder if they could get away with that. I'm pretty sure the rules say one week. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think Black Widow, that might put a damper on it, too. I don't know if the people were thinking about DGA Awards or Academy Awards, but there's a lot of hoopla and buzz right now, especially advertisements which say it's the best Marvel movie ever made. So we'll see. I mean, I guess the problem is that they're kind of ex post facto changing the rules because, like, Black Widow's already out. So what are you going to do? You can't make up a rule and expect the studio to retroactively have been able to adhere to it when they released the movie already. I'm not saying that Zack Snyder's Snyder cut of uh, Justice League was going to get be nominated for a DGA award, but now it's it's definitionally precluded, and that kind of sucks. I don't think it's retroactive for, for Black Widow. Black Widow doesn't come out until, I think, later this week. Yeah, but they they're not going to be able to change their release plans that quickly. No, not at all. I think that I think they might be hosed. Like so. this, whatever the release plans are, the ship has sailed. They can't say, "Oh, never mind. It's not going to be on the service." When they've already said it's going to be on the service. When 
they made that plan. They did not know that the DGA was going to be uh, having this. I wonder I wonder if this is going to backfire in the DGA and they're going to have to make some special exceptions or something because you can't ask any studio or any distribution platform to be kind of that flexible to the whims of any union. And it's not even really a union rule. It's just a union award. So it's not, it's like a thing the union gives out. It's not like uh, it's going to affect anybody's pension or anything, you know? Well, let's see what the Academy does. I'm sure they're going to make a statement here shortly and uh, and we'll see if they, if they follow or, or well, you, uh, you, you want to take a guess? You want to make a bet? I don't know about a bet, but uh, you, you want a dollar? I'll bet you a dollar that the Academy does whatever the DGA does. Okay. I'll take that bet. Uh, you're about to be a dollar richer. I'm just going to do that for the purposes of this podcast. I think you're probably going to be right, but, uh, but yeah, sure. Okay. $1. I'm going to air shake right now with you. There you go. Air. $1. Shake. Yeah. We should have done Dogecoin. Anyway, um, (laughs) let's go ahead and get to that interview with Stuart Biddlecombe. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, I am here transcontinentally across the ocean, across great oceans, talking with Stuart Biddlecombe, DP of the current season of Handmaid's Tale. Holy crap, like uh, one of those water cooler shows that everyone wants to talk about. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you on. Pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much for asking me. So Handmaid's Tale is, you know, one of those shows that I think, not to diss any other TV show, but my God, you know, it it kind of transcends a lot of other TV shows, I think, in terms of its cultural resonance and importance uh, when it shows up in in our world. And so, you know, I I wonder, firstly, what it's like to kind of take the mantle, because when you come to the show, it's already kind of a big hit taking on the mantle of something that's like such a, a cultural icon as it were yeah it's just true yeah i mean so, so i i kind of came in on season season three um now it's shooting at season four and uh yeah when i came on board i was kind of going holy moly this is going to be <laughs> you know this is an extraordinary t- show and I, I have to try and you know carry on this emmy award-winning show and um what kind of made things equally a little bit more tricky was that my director for my first ever block was colin watkinson who he was a cinematographer for seasons one and two he was the emmy uh, winner um so, oh, so wow. to then to be just exactly so to then to, to step into his shoes basically and light his his episode was um was pretty extraordinary um but great you know you know he he kind of he showed me the ropes and i felt very lucky to be able to get his kind of side on it and his take on it and kind of carry on and you know i hope i've done that you know i hope that i've continued you know where he left off working with with Lizzie and all these extraordinary actors and working on these extraordinary important scripts as well I think more than ever you know so so I am yeah I can't believe my luck I'll be honest (laughs) I feel like it was a show that must have been in production before I I, I, when did it first go on the air I believe it was like 2015 or 2016 but it was like the culture here in America uh not to get political like radically shifted and stuff like Handmaid's Tale or Jordan Peele's Get Out suddenly felt like culturally more prescient than they ever had before and I know that you know in in England uh, you've experienced a similar political shift although not maybe in, in the same way. Yes, yeah. When you're working on something like that, as a cinematographer, you've got the reality of your life on the day where you're shooting, you know, X number of pages per day and trying to give the director what they want. But does it is there a greater uh, purpose, something fueling you while you're doing it? Is it is it commanding your attention how, how yes. much a part of the culture it is? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, this book is extraordinary and, and also yeah. incredibly relevant. So to, to be able to tell these stories, I think, is 
is a privilege and also very important for us right now as well. So, so yes, we are very much aware. Yes, of course, no, we do think about you know, the, the day-to-day aspects of, of filmmaking, but we are also very conscious that that we are telling a very important story here. And you see every day in the news now that we are edging towards this Handmaid's Tale-esque world. And, and I think we have to be important. I'm not trying to over-egg about what we do. We are filmmakers and, you know, yeah. I'm not trying to say we are anything more important than you know, doctors or nurses, but but I do think we have got a, a very important story we are trying to tell, and to get it out there is, is important for us. And, you know, this is a book which I read when I was a teenager in, in school, and then to, to put it into into pictures... Oh, is, that's interesting. ...is incredible. So I do feel it's important, and uh, I do feel very lucky. I always... I, I don't know if I'm actually correct when I say this, but Handmaid's Tale, to me, was like... Hulu had been doing a couple original shows here and there, and I feel like Handmaid's Tale was the first one that just knocked it like way, way out of the park for them. And Ilya and I on the podcast are often sort of talking about the streamers, you know, the Netflix and the Hulus and the Amazon Primes as kind of technology companies that have gotten into the entertainment space. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way that I, I think that that's, it's amazing because it's bringing such unique uh, stories to us. Did you find it any different working in that environment or was it basically the same once you're once you're on the show? I must admit, I mean, Hulu have been have been great. They, they I've never worked on a show where they have pretty much left us to it. You know, really? it, I, I, absolutely. I mean, even such a such a way that's not just Hulu, but it's also the production company as well in that. I have an extraordinary input in, in in the look of the show, and also in you know in the way that the, the the story as well to to a degree. I remember at some point a couple of years ago, it was Lizzie, myself, and Bruce were sitting around a table in in Lizzie's apartment, and we were chatting about about where the show was going and what kind of scenes we wanted to shoot. And then so me me the director <laughs> of photography sitting with the executive producer Lizzie, our number one, and also Bruce, the showrunner. And we were talking about what kind of scenes we wanted to shoot and what kind of direction this, this particular episode was going. It was extraordinary. And so we do have an incredible creative input. And, and I think Hulu encouraged that, you know, and, and I think it's very much from the top down. So, you know, Bruce, Lizzie, you know, everyone, Warren, you know, they, they do kind of encourage, we all have an input. And it's not just me either. You know, it's Elizabeth, our, our incredible production designer. So in, with the creative freedom we have on this show is amazing. I, I don't think I've experienced anything like it. You know, it's, it's a reason why, you know, I want to be going back and shooting season five, because I do have, you know, we, we put ourselves on screen, you know, and I can't think of any other show I work on where I'm able to do that. It is incredibly, incredibly collaborative across the board. You know, it isn't just me, but it's also my camera operator. You know, it's my gaffer. It's everyone across the board. It's a great show. And, you know, I think it does come from the top, from, from Hulu, I think. Handmaid's Tale is a show that where color plays, you know, color is damn near a character in the show, the way color is used. And I was curious, like outside of making sure that the featured colors are are in the frame, what do you do with lighting or how are you playing with color in your realm to kind of either complement or properly contrast what the production designer is going for? Obviously, in season one or two, they had a very distinct grades. You know, I think Gilead had these very muted, very, very contrast, very, very um, strong colours. You know, they kind of had had kind of two different worlds. You know, you had the Gilead world and you had the, a Canadian look, if you like. And Canada was this kind of this slightly muted, a little bit softer. Mm-hmm. And they were very distinct. You know, they're, they're kind of, you know, geographical. Gilead was this look and Canada was this look. 
but we kind of need to, we need to evolve this, yeah? particularly now in season four, where we weren't going to be in Gilead so much. We know we were traveling, we were following June, we were following Lizzie's character from Gilead and going into going into Canada. So we're like, okay, well, what what does what this mean for our palette? So it's very interesting to kind of follow that our process and kind of know, okay, well, this is how can our our look progress and how can we push it forward? You know, I think it was very important for us that we didn't just kind of stay with what had been started by, by in seasons one and two. And that we wanted to kind of, we wanted to make it, take it on and sort of see how far it could go. And I, I think we achieved that. So you brought up the grade. I'm curious how much of that evolution in, in look happens practically on set with production design and lighting and costumes and how much of it you achieve in post through the grade because i think when digital grading became a big thing like we saw a bunch of like very overcooked looks you know whatever 10 15 years ago and i feel like grading has become such a subtle art that it's it's harder and harder to tell what was photographed that way and what was post affected we didn't do an awful lot, to be honest, in post. You know, we, we, we did a few tweaks. We did the odd mm-hmm. little thing here and there, the odd vignette, but we didn't do that much. We, you know, we, we, I worked very hard um, with, with, you know, with, with the gaffer, with the designer, and also with, with Mike Ditt as well to, to create these looks while we were shooting it. And essentially, it's, we, we've got a very strong LUT, basically. You know, we, we do build an awful lot into our grade. We put mole beams, big hard lights to our windows, we, and we put a lot of um, soft light onto faces. We didn't do that much. You know, we, we, we had a very clear idea of where we wanted to put these these uh, these scenes. And uh, we, we did it all in camera. We, did, we didn't do that much in post at all. It was, I mean, it was very exciting you know, to almost to see the show evolve in front of our eyes before, oh, nice. before, we, before we knew, you know, before we even got to the edit suite. We just kind of knew that you know, this is what these scenes are going to be. Of course, things change. Of course, they do. But yeah, yeah. You know, we were ninety percent of the way there before we'd even got into the edit suite. It was um, it was very exciting. That's cool. I when I watch The Handmaid's Tale, I always think this is a dystopian story told where the main character's dystopia is the other character's utopia, and we're yeah. kind of in like a weird, you know, like a seesaw. <laughs> And, and I always think it's interesting because it's, you know, we're used to dystopian stories like every zombie movie ever made or, you know, The Walking Dead or The Road or whatever, where it's like, it's just dystopia for everyone. Um, and, <laughs> and Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I'd hopefully in season four, you know, there is a little bit more. You know, there is a bit of, a little bit of light relief. I, I would hope, you know, still keeping, still keeping with the theme of the show, but. Yeah, it is some kind of, it is sometimes difficult to film. You know, some some of the things we shoot are are difficult for us. So much so that being on set is actually incredibly lighthearted. You know, we we purposely make it a fun place to be, just because we're all well aware that you know, this is a very a very hard and very tricky thing that we are filming. So so to try and counteract that, we have a bit of a giggle and we try and have a good time, but. But it is difficult, you know, and it does affect us. You know, we, we are filming things which which are very, very strong and you know, do do affect the audience. But we are very conscious of that. But at the same time, we know that us as filmmakers, and us as human beings, we also have to have to have a bit of light relief as well. So, so we need to. And, and I think it is. You know, we we have a great time on set. It is it is a great place to be, even though we are filming these pretty horrific, um, pretty horrific events. I've always heard, I haven't worked on a lot of comedies myself, but I've always heard that like, because I've worked on a bunch of horror movies and that kind of stuff. And it's like, everyone's always laughing their asses off on those kinds of projects. And I always hear that on comedies, everyone's dead serious and making sure that everything's funny. And that, and that like between takes, everyone's like all. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, I think that probably is. It's kind of the flip side. Exactly that. 
but yeah, but yeah, we, we just, we do, we have a board. It's kind of, I, I, it's the best people I've ever worked with. They really are. And then we, from, from the moment I arrive on set to the moment we leave, we just have an absolute ball. There's not, not a single grump on set. They're all great. That's great to hear. That that really is great to hear. I mean, I think sometimes, especially, you know, for the last year or so with COVID, you know, where everything kind of feels gloom and doom in, in the entire world. And, and, you know, we always are talking about the intense stories of how hard it was to pull off this shot or, you know, how much work went into this or that. It, it, it's fun when it, when it works, when you see the magic, you know, it, it really, it should be fun. That's why we all went into this. Absolutely. And then you can see it, hopefully. But also, I think with COVID as well, it's, I think kind of put into perspective a little bit, really, that we weren't saving lives. We, we are, you know, we're not doctors, we're not nurses. They're the ones who are doing a proper job. We're the ones who <laughs> basically, you know, we're, we're, we're making, you know, we're, we're doing grown-up storytelling. You know, it's, but, but it is, we, you know, we are very incredibly lucky that, um, that, that we can, you know, tell this extraordinary story but have a good time doing it at the same time it is um yeah well i I know you you keep saying that you're not saving lives but i i I would like to say yes you know filmmakers aren't developing uh you know vaccines or or whatever but for people who were stuck uh without being able to leave (laughs) their houses uh having having stuff like handmaid's tale to watch for the last you know year and a half has been a kind of a lifeline so yeah, you know. for sure, absolutely. So, yeah, I, 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 I can agree. Yeah, I think I think you're right. If it, I think if it wasn't for TV during lockdown, I think I probably would have gone mad. I think. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. So let's talk a little bit about you know your hero origin story. You told me off mic before we started that you went uh, to film school actually with one of our previous guests, Shalotta Bruce Christensen. Who's you know just just an, an amazing uh, DP and now director and we've had her on the show twice. Yeah, absolutely. but uh, I always like to ask people where what was the moment in your life where you realized cinematography was a job you could pursue? It was so I got into the industry by by doing t- TV as in multi camera stuff. So I used to work on kind of game shows. I used to be a you know a pencil operator. I used mm-hmm. to do that kind of stuff. And uh, I was kind of in my mid twenties, I think, and I was doing a fairly big show in the UK. Um it's a show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It's oh, quite yeah. a big thing yeah. over here. <laughs> they might have and, it here uh, too. I remember <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you probably do. But um it, I, I remember I, I was probably in my early twenties and I was doing I was holding this camera and I just thought, okay, well this is it. I know I was enjoying it. I was you know, I was loving it, but I just thought, okay, well, I'm I'm here and do I want to be doing this for, for the next 40, 50 years? And uh, I thought, you know what? I don't. I don't want to do it. Um, and I thought, okay, what am I going to do? And I said, I thought to myself, I'm going to go back to film school. So, so, so I gave it all up. And um, I was lucky enough to get into the National Film School here, here, in, um, here in, in the UK. So, so, yeah, it was just a moment where I just thought, life's too short. I want to do what I want to do. You know, um, you know I, I want to tell stories. You know, I don't want to hold mid shots for the rest of my life. I want to... I wanted to try and put some of myself in screen, and I was very lucky enough to, to get into the film school where where I met Shalotta and in a in a class of five we we uh, we get to be taught by these most extraordinary cinematographers for two years. It was um yeah pretty pretty extraordinary pretty extraordinary time. But but you were already operating a camera. Like what 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 brought you there? I was yeah well when I I my, I wanted to work in TV. You know my 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 dad is is a very keen photographer. Um, and I, I, used to, I watched TV and films when I was growing up. And I remember, actually, I just did another, I remember going to school and uh, I remember taking the bus home and sitting on a bus and driving past this, this big, grand, beautiful house out in the countryside. And there's a big archway. And I saw an elephant, an elephant in the middle of the, um, middle of the, of the road. 
what the hell is that? And then I saw a guy sitting on the end of a crane. I thought, what's he doing? What, what, what is going on? Wow. And then I thought, I want to be, I want to be that guy there. I want to be sitting on the end of a crane, <laughs> holding a camera, filming an elephant outside this beautiful house. <laughs> and they, 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 they were filming, I don't know what it was now, it's some kind of TV show here in the UK, and they had an elephant there. And I just thought, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to be that man. I want to be that person who sits sits on the end, the end of the on the end of the crane. And um, I, in the end, I kind of thought, well, okay, let's try and do it. And and uh, and I, from from the age of, I think, probably about eight years old, I think, okay, I either want to be this cameraman or I want to be a pilot. And um, in the end, I thought well, I might as well be, a, you know, I can still travel when I'm a cameraman. So so I decided to be a cameraman <laughs> instead. So, so yeah, so so I, both world. Yeah, exactly. So so I went to I went to managed to get a job as a trainee in the, for a TV company where I worked my way up into to TV operating. And then then as I said, I just thought I know actually you know what this isn't actually what I want to do. I, I want to get into I want to get into drama. I want to tell stories, and that's when I went to the film school. I wanted to ask a question, uh, you know, kind of looking at the broad sweep of your career, which is that after you got out of school, you know, you shot a bunch of shorts and stuff like that. And I, I want to know how you transitioned to being a cinematographer. But most of your career has been spent in television. Was that always your intention? No, I'll be honest, it wasn't. Not really. I mean, I kind of fell into it, really. I think when you leave film school, you're you're kind of you're, you're you're let out into the big bad world and it's a very competitive competitive industry out there you know there's a lot of dps and you take work where you can and that, at the time my first job was was shooting low budget stuff for the bbc and kind of that's where i kind of fell into i don't regret it in the slightest you know to be in all honesty i'd love to shoot films but in honesty, my 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 path happened to fall into TV, but I, right now I feel very lucky to be in the TV world, given that there's so many so many channels, so so many extraordinary TV shows which are now available to us to to shoot. Um, I feel that this is the right thing I've done, and you know, TV and film. I think that I think the lines are slightly blurring. I think, but Ham is Hell. You, know, you can see it in the cinema. You know, the, the way that we shoot it, it, it is cinema. It is, it should be, I would shoot it in the same way that I would shoot a film. So I think right now, the, I think the lines are blurred. I, I think right now the, the quality of the TV shows right now match match film, if not exceed. So um, yes. Often, yeah. Out, out here in LA, I've been lucky enough to like every, uh, before COVID, uh, they would like sometimes when they were premiering the new season of a TV show, they would have a screening in a theater. And uh, I remember I went and saw the first episode of season three of Hannibal was, I think, the last one I went to see. And it was just like no no difference between watching it in a movie. I I almost feel like, you know, in the 90s when I was growing up, you know, we had all these indie films and it's not that indie films have disappeared, but I sort of feel like television shows like Handmaid's Tale 15 years ago, that would have been an an independent film. In fact, there was an independent film of Handmaid's Tale that came out, I think, when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and also, I mean, what TV shot taught me is sometimes how not to shoot, you know, particularly mm-hmm. in the kind of low budget stuff, you know, we have to shoot very quickly. Um, so you kind of, you know, you fall into the kind of the, the usual kind of TV traps. And then after a while, you kind of think, well, okay, well, what else can I do? What else? You know, you, you watch films go, okay, well, what makes this different to, to the stuff I'm shooting? And then you kind of analyze it. You kind of go, okay, well, next time I'm going to do this. Next time I'm going to do that. And so you start to kind of push you, you know, you slowly start to move away from your kind of your TV background and kind of move into a bit more of a, you know, it's more of a cinematic, or want of a better word, into kind of, you know, into more cinematic kind of world. But but I don't regret doing what I did one slightest, you know, in, in, in the slightest. You know, we, we were shooting 
15, 16 pages of dialogue a day. Oh, but, wow. it, but, but it taught me how to shoot quickly. It taught me how to tell a story in the, in the quickest and, and the most efficient manner. It very, it's almost storytelling in the most purest form. Is you know, okay, what can we get from this one shot? Um, you know, we need to cut, these are the beats we need to tell. And this is what, and this is the single position we can do that on because we don't have time. We don't have time to, to go around the houses to go, okay, we're going to shoot this scene from here. You know, it's almost, almost became like a documentary in a way. And that we knew that we wow. didn't shoot coverage. We just knew we had, we had, we had to shoot this scene in about 15 minutes. So you go, okay, well, what is the most, the leanest, the most quickest way we could shoot it? So it was, I probably learned more doing that kind of stuff than, than I did in film school, to be honest. Um, you know, it taught me how to, into, into tell stories quickly. So you you worked on a show that my wife loves, and I've and I've watched it a bunch. Uh, I don't really think I'm the target audience for it as much. Uh, called Call the Midwife. Um, it, uh, yeah, it's, I mean it, it's a great show, but I have a question, and this is probably the hardest, edgiest question I'll ever ask, and I'm afraid to ask it, but I'm just gonna go ahead and ask it, and you can tell me. If you don't want to answer it, don't don't answer it. But okay. I'm just very curious because usually I look at any TV series that any one of our guests has been on and a show that's been on for a while, like, say, Ozark or, yeah. or Handmaid's Tale, whatever. You know, there might be four or five DPs who've worked on it, maybe six. Yeah. But there's like 22 DPs who have worked <laughs> on on Call the Midwife. Yeah. And it's got, it has 88 episodes. And uh, you're the third most. So you you shot eleven really? episodes. Toby Moore Toby Moore shot eighteen episodes. Okay, okay. I if the answer is that the producers go through DPs like I go through Kleenex, then I, I don't want to get into I don't want to get into smearing anybody. But I was just curious if there was like a logistic reason why uh why so many people have worked on the show. And it's it's a it, I mean it's a gorgeous show. It's a period piece. It's a good uh, you know, amazing. It, Amazing attention to detail. I'm yeah. just curious. I mean, I think it probably is. I think it probably. I think. I think it's, we recently talked talked to Polly Morgan, who also shot on that of show. Of course, yeah, exactly, episodes. yeah, and Kate Reed. You know, some some extraordinary DPs have, have been on that show. I think it's kind of. I think, like I said, it's kind of it's a it's part of the course. You know, you have a process of of what shows you work on to as as a DP in the UK. You know, you kind of start on Doctors, you then do Casualty, you know, Doctor Who, called the Midwife, Sherlock, and you kind of work your way up. So I think it's just. You know, it's kind of part of the course. I think it is. I think you know, it's part of our our training. I think, you know, is well. And you and, did work on Doctor Who and Sherlock. As I well. did exactly. And 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 I'm not. But like the Doctor, only one. I guess I don't think about Doctor Who like that because Doctor Who's been on the air for 50 years. Oh, no, that's so true. I know. exactly. <laughs> I, I hate to think about how many DPs have shot that show, but it is. It is. I mean, it really is. It's you could have a convention. Well, yeah, I know, yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I I love the fans; they're, they're great, but um, but yeah, they're, they're pretty full on. I think that's for sure. But it's it's well, yeah, yeah, that show has a fanatical fan base over here as well. Like I know, I know, so many I know. I mean, love, even love now, I mean, I haven't worked on the show for, for years, but um, but but I still get um quite quite a lot of emails kind of asking me about about the show, and it, you know, it, it is part of the you know the you know, kind of the British DP's routine. I think you know, I think any mm. DP, you know, you could. You could look through IMDb and kind of see who the DPs are, and you'll go, "Oh my God, they're doing that now! They're doing that now!" From you know, from in from kind of ten years ago, and and the, the list of the people they have now, you kind of think, "Oh my God, these are these are BAFTA winners, these are Emmy winners," and uh, you know they they they've all shot Doctor Who in the past, so it's um you know it it is very much kind of part of the course I think for for British DPs who kind of they, they do these staple of TV shows before they kind of move on to onto the bigger stuff I think. 
so I'm assuming that we're going to have another season of uh, Handmaids and ho- hoping that you're going to be on it. But beyond Handmaids, like what are you looking to do next or what are what are your upcoming uh, projects that you're look that you're attached to? I mean, at the moment, I'm on an Amazon job here in the UK for, for the same company I worked uh, Sherlock on. Um, it's, a, it's a show called uh, Devil's Hour um, for uh, Hartswood. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just what I really want to work with, I want to work with stories and work with stories which i which i can connect to you know i, I think mm-hmm. as a dp i i need to put myself on screen it's, it's important for me to to connect with the script so i want to i want to be able to put myself i want to i want to put myself out there i want to be creative and, and i want to have work on scripts which i find enjoyable and something which i think is important and i want to work with nice people and creative people i mm-hmm. i think you know life is short to be working with assholes and uh, right now, I just want to be—I want to be working on nice scripts with nice people. And uh, and right now, um, I seem to be doing that. So, um, you know, I you know, That's I, awesome. I, I hope it continues. Somebody else said that I, w- I was talking to another cinematographer recently on here, and uh, I was asking her ab- about like how she chooses her career trajectory because she'd shot a bunch of a co- one kind of thing, but a few things that were like way out of that. She's like, I just like working with people I enjoy working with, you know. Like, I don't. Yeah, wanna... it's, 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 it's so important, and to have that kind of confidence, you know, and something which we which which is very much available to us on Hammerstown is that we are given the opportunity to to speak out. And that's that's what I want to do. We are all creative people. I want to be listened to. You know, I don't want to be barked at. I don't want to be told, okay, you're going to shoot here with an 85 mil, and the light's going to come through here. You're going to be like, okay, fine. That's not the way I want to work. You know, I, I want to. I want to no work fun. with. No, exactly. And I want to work with creative people who who listen to me. Um, and right now, that seems to be happening. So, you know, long may it continue. Well, I think that's an amazing place to leave it. Before we go, do we have a website or Instagram account or anything where uh, where people can kind of interact? With I do. Yeah, I, I guess I guess my Instagram account, I suppose, is pretty interesting. Um, Stuart Dop. Uh-huh. Lots of pictures of Handmaid's Tale and nice. probably my dog as well. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, have a look. Hopefully I will. It's interesting. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> I'll look for both. All right. Well, cool, Stuart. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to meet you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. So that was Stuart Biddlecombe. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, everybody check out the new season of Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, Handmaid's Tale is, oh man, God, I, it is such the water cooler show. You're right. Uh, so many people I know uh, watch that show and are super into it. It's almost uh, so time. It's more timely than it had any right to be. Like when it got greenlit, it wasn't as timely as it was by the time it was released. Yes, definitely. The uh, I think the, the Trump White House had a lot to do with it. Yes, not to get political, but yeah. But yeah, that, that okay. thing you just said. And now, short ends. All right. So, Ilya, it is time for our short ends. What is your pet obsession of the week? Well, I don't know if I mentioned this at any point on the podcast, but I recently purchased a drone. Uh, I purchased a uh, a little DJI drone, and it's been good. It's been a a fun, diverting thing that uh, I've been doing with the kids. It's been recreational. I'm not using it for commercial work. I'm not flying drones to make money or to do anything like that. It has truly been just sort of a fun exercise. And just recently, just in time for, for me doing some hobbyist drone piloting with my kids, the FAA have announced something called trust which is the recreational uas safety test so and it basically says that all recreational flyers must now pass an aeronautical knowledge and safety test 
and provide proof of test passage to the FAA or law enforcement upon request. So uh, it used to be that if you were just a, a hobbyist, you didn't really have to have any sort of formal training. And this is fairly minimal training. I actually haven't done it yet, but I'm going on vacation soon. And before I go fly a drone again, I now have to go through this, this test here to uh, be in compliance with the man. I mean, like, is it like the DMV? You have to like go somewhere and pass a no. test? No, it's a, it's a, you follow the safety guidelines that are on the FAA website oh. and you pass the, the trust test. I'm not even sure if there's there's much of a fee for this, but uh, the website FAA.gov forward slash UAS forward slash recreational underscore flyers forward slash knowledge underscore test underscore updates gives you all of this detail that you might that you might want here you can also type it uh trust faa requirements into google and it'll probably be the first thing that comes up but so anyone else out there who was like me who might have just been flying occasionally here and there there's all the details that you need to know about flying a drone for fun i'll do an update i have all the confidence that i can actually pass this test i've, I've got you know some knowledge of this as a recreational flyer you know i've, I've got some understandings and there's all kinds of warnings that you know drone manufacturers tell you about things you need to be aware of so I'm feeling pretty confident, but if I fail it for some reason, I'll report that too. I'll let you know. Oh this, man, you uh, got to talk about that on the show. You got to like, <laughs> we got to do the the Game of Thrones walk of shame. That's right. If I fail this and I can't fly the drone, then yeah, I'm going to have to hang my head. But it sounds like we have to walk you around Burbank screaming and everyone screams shame, shame and people, people dump old, old food on your head. The really scary part is I'll have to be naked too, because that's, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's part of that whole shaming. Nobody that, in Burbank you know. needs that. <laughs> yeah we can go by jay leno's garage so <laughs> that's a great idea yeah, you bring the old get, food <laughs> my uh i'll throw old old carney's burgers on you yeah my, my my excuse if i drone better when i'm drunk i guess probably won't fly <laughs> i didn't mean the uh, double meaning I was going to say that then like my walk of shame will have to go past like bob's big boy and they got all kinds of like old food to throw at me so i mean that's what they're serving Sorry, sorry, Bob's big boy. Anyway, Bob's big boy. All right. Uh, so, Ben, what, what is your short end this week? I have talked about the Corridor Crew uh, YouTube channel on here before. They do a series called VFX Artists React, where they sometimes will, it'll be like a bunch of different VFX shots and they'll bring in, you know, kind of stalwart, you know, themselves. They're really knowledgeable and smart and awesome. And I love their channel. And uh, every now and then they'll bring on like an Andrew Kramer or uh, Freddie Wong or somebody like that to, to kind of do a deeper thing. But they released a new episode this past week that I think I think it's really fascinating and really worth checking out. They focused entirely on 1998's The Mummy with Brendan Fraser. And they had visual effects art director Alex Laurent, who uh, was the art director at ILM when they made The Mummy. And they went through, and it's very interesting because they'll show a VFX shot that was done in The Mummy. And then they'll ask Alex Laurent how he did it. And he'll usually make them guess. And they're guessing because like, you know, they were in uh, it makes me feel so ancient, but they were in like middle school when The Mummy came out in 1998. <laughs> most most of the guys at Corridor Crew. And so, you know, like I remember, I, I mean, I think I was in college. No, I was way out of college in 98 now that I think about it. But I was a fully grown adult, you know, driving a car and paying taxes by the time that movie came out. But they have a historical understanding of how techniques would have been done back then. And they understand all of them. So they are kind of throwing out their theories. And then he explains 
explains how they did, you know, whatever they did. Was it models? Was it green screen plates? Was it CG? And some of them are like really interesting. Like there's a shot where the sand takes the form of the mummy's face and then kind of caves in. And they were talking about how uh, it's kind of a simple 2D bump map that they kind of just faded off or something. So it gave it the illusion of sliding, but it really wasn't moving but it works for the shot and uh it's always interesting to kind of look back because you know 1998 was a long time ago but some of those effects surprisingly do stand up and obviously this is not the movie with the scorpion king the the notorious scorpion king shot uh, where dwayne johnson is horribly cgi'd um (laughs) you know they also just kind of show the good old-fashioned filmmaking that they did and they'll show some of the original plates where like brendan fraser is is like sword fighting some dusty ass mummy creatures and then they show you the the source plate where brendan fraser is literally pantomiming hitting anything like there weren't any people fighting back with him and he had to kind of get the timing of it all exactly perfect and uh you know it just kind of makes you appreciate what people had to go through to create this stuff 20 whatever 23 years ago it was pretty fascinating so i would say if you have about 10 12 minutes check it out it's very entertaining and i always watch the uh, vfx artist reacts whenever they they have a new one up because you know like a lot of times they'll do an effect from a movie that i love or a movie i've never heard of even better <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad that you found this recreation of Mummy VFX and that you uh, got to relive your Brendan Fraser sort of like campiest greatest moments uh, all over again. <laughs> I, I think you're making fun of me, but I'm very serious. I thought this was excellent. And also, uh, I, can't, I can't make the Sparks documentary my short end two weeks in a row because all I've been doing all week is listening to Sparks music. Uh, did I ever tell you my Brendan Fraser PA story? No, you didn't. Okay, so early on in my career, I had a PA job on a Brendan Fraser movie called George of the Jungle. And I was working in the office. I got a phone call from someone. I didn't know who it was. And they said, hey, yeah, you know, I need to get my dry cleaning taken care of. And I said, oh, uh, who's this? And they said, it's Brendan. I said, okay, hold on a second. Uh, Brandon, let me write this down. And he was like, it's Brendan, Brendan Fraser. I'm in the movie. And I went, oh. Okay. Yeah. Hold on a second, Brendan. We'll arrange to get your dry cleaning taken care of. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, he he didn't like that I had said Brandon. <laughs> he made, he made a real point of oops. Like I how do, I didn't know. I mean, it's just calling me on the phone. Some guy wanted his dry cleaning taken care of. We've Tur- all been that boneheaded out. PA, and that was your time. <laughs> that was my time. Yeah, George of the Jungle. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I only have one Brendan Fraser story, and that was that I saw him at a screening once, and I it, it's one of those moments where you realize why people are movie stars, because in a room full of people, he was just standing around, and it was The Quiet American, I think, which is a movie he did that I believe also starred Michael Caine. It's a very good movie, and I just remember like I'm in the I'm in the room. It was at the ArcLight in the lobby, and it's like when you see somebody who's got that movie star thing, whatever it is. Mm. And it's so hard to define. It's just like your eyes just you almost don't want to look at them and you also don't want to look at anything else. And you realize that's why you're a that's why you're a fucking movie star is because every cell in my body just wants to look at whatever the hell you're about to do. And, you know, when you meet these people, I I had a similar experience with you when we went to the ASC Awards years ago and Angelina Jolie was presenting something. Oh, yeah. And Angelina Jolie, awesome actor. But like when she walked up onto the stage, it was just like. I am not the same species as that person who's going up there. Holy crap. Your eyes just don't want to go off of her. And you're like, that's why she's a movie star. 
LA is an interesting place because almost anywhere you can run into someone famous, including big A-list people, and then all the sort of levels of all the strata down below that too, to uh, character actors and, and, and you name it. But those people who do have that certain je ne sais quoi, that, that certain, you know, undefinable thing, they really do kind of stick out. I'm sure I probably mentioned, maybe even on this show before, but Angelina Jolie's child and my child used to do karate together. And sometimes Angelina would just be another parent sitting there, you know, with everyone else waiting for their kids to do uh, to do karate. But even doing that, she totally stuck out. It was totally Angelina Jolie. Awesome. Yeah. So Ilya, we're going to have to shake it up now because it's time to thank our amazing crew who, who make the show happen. Yeah. But I think first we should say thank you, Kay's Alatrachi. Thank you for listening to the show. <laughs> yeah. I've never uh, said that before. Thanks, Kay Zalatrachi, who's totally listening to us right now. Who's you're totally... listening to us right now. So you're hearing the plug that we have been giving you for low these seven years. Please go to musicbykays.com and email him uh, like anything, like just say you like his music and please hire him if you need music or graphics or color correction i I think really you should hire him for his music though his music's really good and he's got a huge body of work and he can do all kinds of genres and things it's like you know you should hire case for his music i have personally uh worked with him as a composer on several projects and i cannot say enough nice things about case so next we should thank alana cody who has been listening to every episode because she has to like proof this stuff that's, so that's true to listen to yeah. all this all all of this whatever we're doing here and she uh lines up all these amazing interviews for us we have some um, some just wonderful people coming up very soon so please stay tuned and uh last but definitely not least these these thanks are in no particular order uh ben katz our editor who somehow makes us not sound like complete dopes and in fact makes you and i sound interesting enough that Kay actually wants to listen to us talk yeah no kidding and in fact in lieu of of even our guests he wants to hear us yap it up which incredible hey ben i realized we didn't ask uh, where can people find you if they want to find you out there in the world (laughs) you can find me kicking around the alley behind the starbucks over on (laughs) burbank boulevard and van nuys boulevard that's really true i I know you frequent that that starbucks well i go to that starbucks and then i yak on the phone in the alley behind it with (laughs) with my airpods so if you do find me there i'm probably talking on the phone it might be important but it probably isn't probably just just wave hello other than that you can find me at benrockonline.com Nice. And you, Ilya, where can people find you on the Information Superhighway? <laughs> on the Information Superhighway, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Proud sponsor of the Cinematography Podcast going on, what, seven years now? Incredible. Seven years. Oh I know. <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? We're still it doing this. Feel, it only feels like 20. It only feels like 25. Yeah, exactly. It's not It's not the years. It's the miles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, find, me, find me over there. You can also find me in all the usual sort of spots that people find others on the internets, the Facebooks and the LinkedIn's and, you know, the such and such. I, I believe the plural is linked in. Li- links in. Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> all right. So I think that's going to do it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.